Psalm 92, in the middle of the book of Psalms, it's a song for the Sabbath, as it says itself, and in ESV it is titled, How Great Are Your Works. Let us read Psalm 92. It is good to give thanks to the Lord, to sing praises to your name, O Most High, to declare your steadfast love in the morning and your faithfulness by night. To the music of the lute and the harp, to the melody of the lyre. For you, O Lord, have made me glad by your works. At the works of your hands I sing for joy. How great are your works, O Lord. Your thoughts are very deep. The stupid man cannot know. The fool cannot understand this. That though the wicked sprout like grass and all evildoers flourish, they are doomed to destruction forever. But you, O Lord are on high forever. For behold your enemies, O Lord, for behold your enemies shall perish. All evildoers shall be scattered. But you have exalted my horn like that of the wild ox. You have poured over me fresh oil. My eyes have seen the downfall of my enemies. My ears have heard the doom of my evil assailants. The righteous Flourish like the palm tree and grow like a cedar in Lebanon. They are planted in the house of the Lord. They flourish in the courts of our Lord. They shall be fruit in old age. They are ever full of sap and green to declare that the Lord is upright. He is my rock and there is no unrighteousness in him. This is the word of the Lord. In the introduction to Psalm 92, we read that the psalm was intended as a song for the Sabbath. So before digging into the psalm, I want to spend a couple of minutes to remind us what the Bible teaches us about the Sabbath. The Hebrew word Shabbat is derived from a Hebrew verb that can be translated as to repose, to rest. But it's also used in association with celebration. We hear about Sabbath the first time in Exodus 16.23 when God designated the last day of the week, the seventh day, as a holy Sabbath to the Lord, a day of solemn rest. With the giving of the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20, God commands us to always remember the Sabbath and to keep it holy and to not do any work on this day. The Hebrew word for holy, kadash, can otherwise translate it with consecrated, dedicated, or set apart. The Sabbath day is to be a day set apart from the other days of the week, a day consecrated to God. In Exodus 20, God also reminds us that after creating the heavens and the earth in six days, he likewise rested on the seventh day, the last day of the first week. In accordance with the Jewish calendar, God started creation on a Sunday, the first day of the week. On the seventh day, Saturday, God finished his work and he rested. God saw everything that he had made and behold, it was very good. God blessed the Sabbath day and he made it holy. As such, the Sabbath serves as an eternal reminder of God's work of creation and God's providence in creation. 
In addition to all Saturdays, God instituted certain Jewish memorial days and festivals and designated them as Sabbath days as well. Examples are the Passover, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the Day of Atonement, and the Feast of Booths, or the Feast of Tabernacles. These feasts and days were all instituted to remember and celebrate God's redeeming work for his chosen people. Passover, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and the Feast of Tabernacles served to remind the Jews how God had saved them from slavery in Egypt and how he had guided them and provided for them during the trek through the wilderness on their way to the promised land. Now the Day of Atonement served to annually remind God's people of their sinfulness and the need for sacrifice to atone for their sins. Now the Apostle Paul teaches us in Colossians that these festivals and Sabbath days were also a shadow of things to come and that the acceptance of these days belong to Christ alone. In that light, I'd like to note that the Passover celebration and the Day of Atonement also pointed forward to that very day when Jesus Christ, the true Passover lamb, was to be slaughtered as a sacrifice for the sins of God's people, as it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Like the Jews in Egypt at the time of Moses, those people today here, who confide in the blood of the Lamb, will be passed over in judgment, on judgment day, that great day of the Lord when Jesus comes again. Likewise, the Feast of Tabernacles served to point forward to the first coming of Christ, the days that Jesus, the bread of life, as we heard, would tabernacle with his people on earth and give all of us the water of life, the Holy Spirit. The same feast, the Feast of Tabernacles, also served to foreshadow the eventual second coming of Christ, when God's dwelling place will once again be with men on earth, just as it was in the Garden of Eden, but that on a grander scale, the very climax and consummation of new creation. As such, the Sabbath serves not only as an eternal remembrance of God's works of creation, but also of his works of redemption and new creation. Now, as it comes to the specifics of the Sabbath, God in Exodus 31 commands us to keep the Sabbath as a sign for the perpetual, perpetual covenant between God and his people, reminding us of the intimate relationship we enjoy with God by the means of this covenant. In Leviticus 23, God teaches us that the Sabbath is not only a day of solemn rest, but also a day of holy convocation, a day of worship. Likewise, in Isaiah 66, God commands all flesh to worship him each and every Sabbath day. In Isaiah 58, God teaches us that on the Sabbath, we ought to practice righteousness and serve the needy and the afflicted, rather than going our own ways and seeking our own pleasure. And we are to delight in that day set apart by God, rejoice and be glad in it, rather than quarrel and fight. Finally, Jesus taught in Matthew 12 
that God's command to rest on the Sabbath does not apply to works related to worship of God, to works related with necessity and works of mercy. In summary, about the Sabbath, the Bible teaches us that the Sabbath day is a day of rest and worship, a day set apart to remember and to celebrate God's works of creation, redemption, and new creation, a day consecrated to the Lord for the glory of God, a day to not go our own ways or seek our own pleasure, but a day during which we find our delight in the Lord. All right, so enough on the Sabbath. Let's go to Psalm 92. Psalm 92 is likely a psalm written by David, even though the Jews attribute this psalm to Adam. Um, as the psalmist teaches, Psalm 92 is a song for the Sabbath, a song to be sung during worship. Now, as we will see, Psalm 92 is also all about the Sabbath. It's all about worship. Psalm 92 teaches us how to worship, when to worship, and why to worship. And it teaches us the very focus of our worship. Now, starting with the how to worship. So we're going to talk about the how, the when, and the why, and the focus. As it comes to the how to worship, Psalm 92 in verses 1 through 4 teaches us to joyfully give thanks and praise the Lord with song to the music and melody of musical instruments, as we just have heard. In verses 3 and 4, the psalmist teaches us to sing to the music of the lute and the harp and to the melody of the lyre. Now, the use of instruments during worship is not limited to the ones that I just mentioned. In the Old Testament, we also read about the use of tambourines, cymbals, horns, pipes, and trumpets during worship, in addition to the stringed instruments that I just mentioned. With song and music, we declare God's steadfast love in the morning and his faithfulness by night. Furthermore, as it comes to the how to worship, in Psalm 92, we also recognize a distinct order of worship that we also see elsewhere in Scripture. God teaches us that worship should be done decently and in order. In Psalm 92, we note the same orderly sequence of events in worship as we see, for example, in Isaiah 6. We enter God's presence in awe and wonder. We give thanks and praise. We confess our sins and we receive God's pardon. And we end with God's sending, sent out into the world with the calling to profess our faith and to share the gospel. By the way, this is obviously exactly the reason why we worship at Trinity the way we do. Our liturgy is not something that we made up out of thin air, but is inspired by the scripture and by traditions of the church throughout history. In verse 1, and now I'm talking about that sequence of events, in verse 1, we see the psalmist entering God's presence with thanksgiving and praise. We read that it is good to give thanks to the Lord and sing praises to his name. Like the psalmist in verse 1, and the seraphim in Isaiah 6, I'm going to compare Psalm 92 to Isaiah 6, uh, the seraphim in Isaiah 6 who called out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. We acknowledge God as the most high, almighty, and all-knowing, 
creator of heaven and earth. In verses 4 and 5 we read, At the work of your hands I sing for joy. Here the psalmist acknowledges God's greatness and God's wisdom in creation. When he sings, how great are your works and your thoughts are very deep. Earlier in the Psalms, in Psalm 19, David witnessed that the heavens declare, declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Likewise, in Isaiah 6, the seraphim proclaimed, the whole earth is full of his glory. All of creation around us bears witness to the existence of God Almighty. When we enter into the glorious presence of our most holy God, as we did this morning, we are immediately confronted with the darkness and the evil that resides within ourselves. After entering God's holy presence, we acknowledge and consider our individual and collective sinfulness as a broken humanity. We confess our sins, as Isaiah did in Isaiah 6, crying out, Woe is me, for I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Similarly, in our psalm today, in verse 6, the psalmist confesses, The stupid man cannot know, the fool cannot understand. What he does here with his description of the stupid man, the psalmist acknowledges godless humanity to be like dumb cattle in comparison to God. Sheep, stupid sheep, I might say, without a shepherd. The Hebrew word translated with stupid is always translated with brutish in King James Version. This is a description for all that that is inhuman, and void of any reason. That is what the psalmist says we are. Inhuman and void of any reason as it compares to God Almighty. Compared to God, humanity without God is stupid, like stupid sheep in need of a shepherd. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord in Isaiah 1. In verse 7, the psalmist acknowledges that as a fallen humanity, we are all wicked and all enemies of God doomed to destruction. We all have sinned and we all fall short of the glory of God. And as such, we all truly deserve death. Now in stark contrast to our brutish humanity in verse 8, the central and pivotal verse of Psalm 92, right in the center, we come to the very focus of the psalm when we read, with you, O Lord, are on high forever. Going on, after the psalmist reminds us once again in verse 9 that all God's enemies will be scattered and will perish, he explains in verse 10 how God had saved him from utter destruction when he says, but you have exalted my horn like that of the wild ox. You have poured over me fresh oil. Here the psalmist tells us that God had given him great power like that of a bull. God had empowered him by pouring fresh oil on him. What does that mean? In 1 Samuel 16 we read about the anointing of David 
Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him, that is David, in the midst of his brothers. And the spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. In other words, by pouring fresh oil on him, the psalmist, God anointed the psalmist with the Holy Spirit, just as God has anointed us with the Holy Spirit, our helper. Enabled by the Holy Spirit, the psalmist could clearly see and hear what he could not before. God's blessings in a victory won in spite of his human weaknesses. In verse 11 we read, My eyes have seen the downfall of my enemies. My ears have heard the doom of my evil assailants. We, likewise, enabled by the Holy Spirit, will see the downfall of our enemies and hear about the doom of our assailants, namely Satan and his demons, always tempting us to sin. In Romans 8.37, Paul says, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. We all are conquerors, not because of anything in us. This anointing with the Spirit also reminds us of God's prophecy in Ezekiel 36, where God promised and I paraphrase, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh, and I will give you a heart of flesh. And here comes the important part. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. By the giving of the Holy Spirit, God helps us to walk in his statutes. By the power of his Spirit given to us, God cleanses us of our sins and empowers and helps us to follow his commandments. As Isaiah in Isaiah 6 was cleansed of his sins when God touched his mouth with a burning coal, we, like the psalmist, were cleansed of our sins when God anointed us with his Holy Spirit. Our guilt, like that of the prophet Isaiah, has been taken away and our sins have been atoned for. With the help of God alone, the unrighteous have become righteous. Without God's help, our fate would be just like that of God's enemies. But by the grace of God alone, even though sinners... We have become righteous saints in the eyes of God. In verses 12 and 13, we read that the righteous flourish like a palm tree and grow like a cedar in Lebanon. They are planted in the house of the Lord forever. They flourish in the, gods, in the courts of our God. <clears throat> the righteous are compared to magnificent trees planted in the courtyard of the Lord. The righteous are promised to flourish like a palm tree and to grow like a cedar in Lebanon. The palm tree here symbolizes stature, beauty, and fruitfulness, whereas the Lebanon cedar, highly resistant to rot, is a symbol of strength and endurance. That's how God sees the righteous. In Psalm 1, we read about the righteous. He is like a tree planted by streams of water, that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. 
in all that he does, he prospers. Likewise, in verse 14 and 15 of our psalm today, we read that the righteous are promised to bear fruit in old age, ever green and ever full of sap, to declare that the Lord is upright, that the Lord is our rock and refuge, and that there is no unrighteousness in him. Here we not only hear about our assurance of salvation, but we also hear about God's calling for us. Here we read that we can be sure of this, that he who began a good work in us will bring it to completion at the days of Jesus Christ. Here we read that by God's grace alone, we will persevere to the very end. We will keep the faith and we will finish the race. Here we read that the Holy Spirit, a gift from God to us, is the guarantee of our inheritance until we shall, we shall acquire possession of it. So here we read about the assurance of our salvation, but here we also read that God calls us to go out into the world to bear witness about our Lord. In the Great Commission, in Matthew 28, the ending of the very Gospel of Matthew, God commands us to go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, <clears throat> teaching them to observe all that God has commanded us. Once again, comparing to Isaiah 6, for the last time when the Lord asks, whom shall I send and who will go for us we are to respond like Isaiah by saying, here I am, send me, ready to proclaim that the Lord is upright, that he is our rock, and that there is no unrighteousness in him. Summarizing, as it comes to the how of worship, we worship with joy, singing to music with thanksgiving and praise, following an orderly liturgy as inspired by God's holy word. So now we go to the when to worship. So before we focus on the when to worship, I would first like to note, as we all know, that in Old Testament days, the Jews celebrated the Sabbath with the holy convocation on a Saturday, the last day of the week, as they still do today. Now, following the resurrection of Christ, we read in the New Testament that the followers of Christ started to worship on Sunday, the day after the Jewish Sabbath. Memorializing Sunday as the day of the resurrection of Christ and celebrating Sunday as the first day of a new week, the first day of new creation. The Lord's Day had become the Christian Sabbath, a day of rest and worship for Christians. Now, as it comes to the specifics of when to worship in Psalm 92, we read back in verse 1 and 2 that it is good to declare God's steadfast love in the morning and his faithfulness by night. The actually the by night in verse 2 is better translated with every night as we read in King James Version, since the original Hebrew reads nights, the plural. 
we ought to worship God every single night, not just on a Sunday night, but on every night of the week, all year long. In his commentary on Psalm 92, Matthew Henry expands that we are to worship in the morning and at night, not just on Sabbath days, but every day. We must begin and end every day with praising God. We must give him thanks every morning for the mercies of the night and every night for the mercies of the day. In summary, as to the when to worship, we ought to remember and celebrate Christ every day of the week. As individuals, we are to thank and praise God with song every morning and every night as we thank and praise God corporately on the Lord's Day today. It is good to start the day by seeking God in prayer and the end, and to end our day finding our rest with God in prayer. Finally, we come to the why to worship. Back in verse 1, as we read, we worship God to thank Him and praise Him. In Psalm 92, we read some of the reasons that we ought to thank and praise God. Back in verse 1 and 3, we read that we ought to thank and praise God for His steadfast love for us and His faithfulness. God's love for those in Christ is impartial, unconditional, and unchanging. His love for us is not wishy-washy like our love for Him. God remains faithful to His promises, even though we are not. God's promises are sure. God always does what He promises. In verse 4 and 5, we read that we also ought to thank and praise God for His power, His wisdom, and His providence in display or on display in all that He had created. All of creation points to the nature of God. The Apostle Paul testifies in Romans 1 that God's invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. Creation tells us that God is all-powerful and all-knowing. God can do all things and God knows all things. Great is the Lord and His greatness is absolutely unsearchable. In summary, verses 1 through 5, they teach us to thank and praise God because He is steadfast, loving, faithful, almighty, and all-knowing. In verses 6 through the end, the focus shifts from praising and thanking God for who He is to praising, praising and thanking God for what He has done for us. Like the psalmist, God has empowered us by pouring fresh oil on us. He gave us the Holy Spirit. God has given us a helper. We need a helper, as we all know. The Holy Spirit helps us and guides us all day long, every day of the year, every year for the rest of our lives. Thanks be to God. God, the Holy Spirit, opened our eyes, enabling to see our own sinfulness and the darkness that resides in all of us. With His perfect law, God showed us to be sinners in need of a Savior. The Holy Spirit opened our eyes and our ears to the righteousness of God in Christ. 
we are no longer deaf and blind. We are no longer like the sons of disobedience, blinded by the God logy of this earth. We are no longer walking around in utter darkness, guided by our own sinful desires. Helped by the Spirit, we can now see and perceive, and we can hear and understand. As prophesied by Isaiah in Isaiah 35, then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. That has happened to us by the power of the Holy Spirit. We thank God and praise God for changing us. We once too were fools deceived by our father the devil, but God, but God, gave us a new heart that longs for Jesus and desires his righteous ways. We now love Jesus than we more, than we more, more than we used to love ourselves. The gift of the Holy Spirit is not a reward for anything that we did, we do, or we will do. The gift of the Spirit was not anything we deserved, but rather a gift from God, freely given to those who understand that they least deserve it. God drew us out of, his, out of our darkness into his light by giving us his spirit, our Lord and life giver. Without God's intervention in our lives, our fate would have been just like that of God's enemies. Psalmist reminds us in verse 7 and 9 that even though the wicked seem to flourish like grass in this life on this earth here today, God's enemies shall eventually perish and all evildoers shall be scattered. We thank God and we praise God for raising us from death to life, bringing us, birthing us into a new life, an eternal life in the house of the Lord. Deserving death, we were given life. We thank and praise God for newly creating us as we are a new creation for to such belong the kingdom of God. Finally, and here we come to the focus. Jesus. Finally, we thank God for his righteousness. In verse 12, we read that the righteous will flourish like the palm tree and grow like a cedar in Lebanon. However, we know that the Bible teaches us that no one is righteous, not even one. As offspring of Adam and Eve, we are all unrighteous. The Bible teaches that we are all sinners, all deserving condemnation, as the wages of sin is death. The natural man without God deserves death. Jesus Christ, as a lamb, <clears throat> without blemish, lived a perfect, perfectly righteous life here on earth many years ago. As such, Jesus deserved to live forever. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. Jesus Christ was crushed for us. Delivered up according to the definite plan and the foreknowledge of God, crucified and killed by the hands of those he died for. 
Jesus self-sacrificially submitted himself to the punishment. I can't read anymore. To the punishment that we all deserved. Like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter. Jesus Christ, our suffering servant, came to serve rather than be served. Jesus, our high priest, served us by offering himself up as a one-time sacrifice for all to atone for all of our sins, past, present, and future. The shepherd laid down his life for his sheep, and we were healed by his stripes, by his punishment. With Jesus, all the sins of those who depend on his righteousness were nailed to the cross. Those who trust and believe in Jesus are no longer with sin. When Jesus cried out, it is finished, and gave up his spirit, all God's chosen people who at conception had been debited with the sins of the first Adam were now credited with the righteousness of the last Adam, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. For our sake, God the Father made him, Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. In the words, in the words of King David in Psalm 24, we have received blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of our salvation. We have received his righteousness. Rather than God's enemies, we can become his friends simply by confessing our unrighteousness, repenting of our sins, and trusting in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. God commands us to turn from our sin and run to Jesus. Don't hold out. Don't wait to try and get something out of your house. You've got to go. God's perfect sacrifice quenched the wrath of God the Father. He stilled this wrath a holy wrath, burning hot, kindled for thousands of years by the sins of God's people, including our sins. Christ's sacrifice quenched that wrath. That wrath is no more. The bowls of the wrath of God were poured out onto Jesus on the cross. With Christ's death on the cross, those who believe in him were cleansed of their sins. When Christ died 2,000 years ago, you who were yet to be born were cleansed of your sins. It has nothing to do with you. Christ's resurrection to eternal life was the very proof that, Christ, that God the Father had accepted his son's offering on our behalf, on behalf of his friends. Like Jesus, those who believe in him are promised a resurrection to eternal life with God in heaven. We, the undeserving, 
have received and will receive that only Jesus deserves. Christ is the resurrection and the life. Through him, through or though we die once, we shall live forever. Jesus is therefore the very reason why we worship. Jesus should be the focus of our worship. Jesus is our righteousness. Jesus Christ is Lord of the Sabbath. So therefore, let us worship God day in, day out, in word and deed. Let us thank God and praise God for Jesus, Son of Man and Son of God. Jesus is the gift of all gifts. Jesus is the one gift that keeps on giving. Jesus is the pearl of great price. Jesus is the treasure in the field. Jesus is the light of this world. And our darkness will never overcome his light. Jesus is the good shepherd. He is the door of the sheep. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus is divine. We are the branches. We only live because he is. May we always remember and celebrate that God in Christ is our Savior. Like Job, let us ascribe our righteousness to our Maker. May we forever rest in the righteousness of Christ. May Jesus be our eternal Sabbath rest. Finally, God appointed us that we should go out and bear fruit. Let us therefore go out and declare that Jesus is our rock and our fortress and our deliverer, our God, our strength, in whom we trust, our shield and the anointed horn of our salvation, our stronghold. As we read in this final verse of Psalm 92, let us go out and declare that the Lord is upright, that he is our rock and that there is no unrighteousness in him. Thanks be to God. Let us give thanks, and let me pray. Lord God Almighty, ancient of days, we thank you for your abundant blessings in your Son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Help us all to die to ourselves and come alive in the body of Christ. Help us all to turn from our sins and run to Jesus and find our rest in him forevermore. Amen.